Hello, and welcome back to Love and Friendship, sort of. So, if you have been hanging around my podcast for any length of time, listening to any of our lecture series, or sort of any of the other bonus episodes I've done largely for my listeners out there in internet land, you're probably familiar with the fact that I tend to get a little navel-gazy and tend to be a little more meditative than actually, like, professory when it comes to these final episodes of a given season. Um, I want to do a little bit of that today. Uh, like, yes, there is Foucault to talk about, but for the most part, the, the kind of capstone end of the framing device that I want here is more for, like, food for thought, more for discussion than, than for, like, actually me sitting up and talking about exactly what Foucault is doing in the history of sexuality, volumes two and three, and, you know, how far his project actually got before he tragically died. Like, there's... A lot to talk about, sure, but really I want to focus specifically on his business of the the techniques of the self. Um, And I want to kind of apply that to my own case. So once again, it is sort of an opportunity for for navel-gazing, for talking about what exactly is going on with the future of Professor Kozlowski lectures so much as it exists. Last time when I did one of these was when we were finishing off Bulgakov for my humanities class. And I mentioned at the time that, you know, I had no idea where this this was going at this point. Like, I had, at this point, or at that point, I had recorded three full lecture series, like three full classes worth of lectures. Um, I had recorded all of my Intro to Philosophy classes, all of my uh, Mythology classes, and then at that point all of my Humanities classes, including a full read-through of Mikhail Bulgakov's The Master and Margarita, and at the time I honestly had no idea what the future would hold. I, I didn't know. I had no idea that I was going to record a whole other lecture series, a whole other you know, class for the sake of uh, a school that I hadn't even been hired at yet. Um, I was honestly expecting everything to kind of fizzle out. Like, I I wasn't sure if there were enough listeners out there who were interested in hearing me continue. I didn't know I'd get the opportunity to teach a class that I hadn't recorded lectures before. Um, And for that matter, you know, COVID changed. Like, I started this project you know, to, to record all the lectures for my various classes out of necessity. Like, I, I had, you know, I, I was recording these on, on Audacity, and I was planning to upload them to Canvas, which was the, the sort of mechanism by which I, I disseminated information to my students, um, only to find that Canvas wasn't large enough to host um, more than one or two of these recorded lectures. Like, it, sound audio files of somebody talking for an hour and more uh, are, are actually very large. Um, and as a consequence, I started uploading them publicly. I was like, well, screw it. If my schools aren't going to give me the resources to host them privately, then I'm going to post the stuff, stuff publicly. Um, and due to the strange phenomenon, the, the kind of honestly a little manipulative phenomenon of me uh, posting them publicly and then requiring entire classes worth of my students to li- listen to them, I was guaranteeing, you know, like 80, 90, 100 listeners every semester to literally all of my lectures. Um, and that's that's the first thing I want to talk about. Things have changed as far as that's concerned. COVID is not over by any extent of the imagination. I even hesitate to say that it's on the wane because it gives us this sense that, you know, we can let our guard down and, you know, it's not as big a deal as it was. And it kind of is. Like... I'm recording this in October of 2021, and the the COVID update is, um, like, at this point, we are having class, at least in New Jersey, uh, in, like, actual person. Everybody is masked and everybody is vaccinated, but it, it is actually happening, and outbreaks are very rare. Um, even at the schools, like we, we had a, an email lately from one of my schools that was basically like, you know, do respond to contract contact tracing emails. And if you're worried that you're not receiving them, don't, because the fact of the matter is the chances of transmission between two vaccinated and masked individuals, no matter how close they're sitting in class, is very limited, very rare. I myself am vaccinated. I am still lecturing masked, which is 
kind of exhausting in its own right, but it's something I'm fairly used to at this point. Um, the fact of the matter is, we are having class in person more often than not. And as I said at the beginning of this lecture series, you know, I, I anticipated that as much as this was a great fallback mechanism for any students who couldn't make it to class for one reason or another, um, and I know at, at, at like I'm a month into my semester that some of my students have been taking advantage of these recorded lectures and have asked about them. Um, at the same time, if people are listening, it's primarily going to be my online followers. Um, but that also means that I'm not going to get nearly the traffic that I used to. Like, not nearly. Um, in a couple of weeks, I'm starting a late section class for my Intro to Philosophy, which means that those lectures are going to get listened to again. But it means that the new ones aren't getting listened to as much by a long shot, and overall they're not getting listened to as much, which means that my traffic is down as far as Anchor is concerned, um, as far as Spotify and so on and so forth are concerned. Um, which is not to say that I haven't had a good run. Like, if I look at Anchor, you know, I've got something like 13,000 listens, and that's just over the past two years. Like, that's as long as I've been doing this stuff. Yeah, 12,500. Good grade, Professor. Do, do not exaggerate too much. My estimated audience is a mere 41, and my unique listeners over the last week is about 165. Um, which means it's not likely to get better. Um, things, as far as the, the potential prospects of me actually having an internet presence, I'm kind of at, you know, the same crossroads that I was last time. Like, do I double down? Do I commit? Um, do I, you know, actually make a go of, of making an online presence, or, or do I back off? Do I recognize that there really probably isn't a future in this, short of me working really hard to make one? Um, however, my personal situation has changed rather dramatically. Um, getting this new job at Ramapo, getting, getting you know, the, these new teaching opportunities, as much as it seems like, oh, well, that's another class in the bucket for me, well, Ramapo pays me a lot better um, than most of the other schools where I'm teaching at, like a lot better compared to the community colleges, for sure, and I, you know, can't speak to exactly why that's the case. That's obviously a lot of personal decisions, union stuff, like, way, stuff way out of my pay grade one for one reason or another. Um, but at any rate, for me personally, it means that I can now not teach a, an overwhelming load of classes every semester, and I don't have to, you know, sit at the beck and call of my department chairs every every fall, waiting to see what I hear. Um, now that's not a guarantee. Like I, I ended up teaching these two classes, these two sections of love and friendship, uh, because of an emergency medical leave. So I have no idea. Um, if Professor Roy, the, the fellow who was teaching these classes before I came in, will be back next semester or not. I'm anticipating that he will. Um, I'm anticipating that what's going to happen is he's going to come back and I will be asked to teach, you know, one class virtually every semester basically to just keep me on the payroll at Ramapo until um, they can either hire a new professor or they, you know, have have a need to keep me around for one reason or another. Um, I'm hoping that's the case anyway, because again, they pay me really well, and I would like to hang on there. It's a good school. It's a you know, good community, good students, the whole thing. I'm hoping um, to stick around. But I can't guarantee it, which means as much as my situation has changed, I'm now making a lot more money this semester than I had before. I was able, quite comfortably, um, to tell some of my department chairs that I wasn't going to teach classes for them this fall, knowing full well that I was going to make more money teaching fewer classes than I have in the past. Um, I can't guarantee that that's going to be consistent. Um, what I can say, though, is that I expect my workload to go down no matter what happens. Um, during COVID, the it was incredibly stressful trying to simultaneously run all these classes, deal with COVID restrictions, deal with the strange formats of various classes, and also keep up with all the recording lectures as a way of kind of managing these new formats and these new restrictions. Um, I don't anticipate in any circumstances that I'll be asked to teach another new class next spring. Um, I secretly kind of hope at one point or another that somebody's going to ask me to teach ethics and then I'll record my ethics lectures because, again, I think that's a really important class and I'm 
honestly a little surprised that I haven't had the opportunity to record any ethics lectures up until now. Um, but again, that's unlikely to happen, I, I, I think. The, the one school where I would likely be asked to teach ethics, um, they haven't in quite some time, and I, and I now that I've got my other jobs, it seems unlikely that they're going to tap me for that. Um, so I'm not counting on it. Um, but on the other hand, I was asked, like over the summer, I was, you know, getting a couple of emails here and there from listeners online who had heard me talk about Bulgakov, and, you know, I had sort of idly suggested there that if I, if somebody wanted me to, to sort of do a similar run-through of a, another book, like, and I use the example of Dostoevsky's Brothers Karamazov, um, that I, that would be something I'd certainly consider down the road. Um, and I actually got some pretty hefty response as far as that's concerned. I got two whole people who emailed me and said, yes, please, definitely do the Brothers Karamazov. Um, and I kind of really want to now, like, not just to satisfy those two people because I admire the... Uh, you know, listeners reaching out to me, but also because I think it would be really interesting. Um, like one of the one of my listeners specifically mentioned, she would be interested in that specifically because I would be a Christian reading the Brothers Karamazov, and she wanted you know that particular perspective, that particular take. Um, what's more, I do kind of consider myself an amateur scholar of Dostoevsky. I would very much like to talk about quite a few of his works. Um, in fact, Brothers Karamazov might not even be the first one I'd pick, given my druthers. Um, like, I am a huge fan of what has often been translated the possessed, or what should be translated demons. Um, I think it's an incredibly relevant text for our age, and I, it's just a lot of fun to read, uh, for that matter. Uh, but Brothers Karamazov is certainly the most more important of the two, and the one that has the sort of more academic traction. Um, so I would be totally cool uh, doing that lecture series. Um, so what I'm saying is I'm hoping that in the spring things will calm down a little bit. I won't have some new lectures to record for class reasons, and I will not have some overwhelming set of responsibilities due to the COVID restrictions. Hopefully that will have, you know, kind of been phased out by then. Um, and as a consequence, I'm hoping in the spring to record a lecture series on Dostoevsky, something a little bit slower paced by comparison to what we've been doing. You know, no 26 lectures of an hour and 40 minutes apiece um, to cover the Brothers Karamazov. Um, but at the very least, like maybe a dozen lectures doing about an hour and 15 the way that I used to. Um, that sounds like a pretty good exchange and something that would be fun to do. Um, so look forward to that in the spring, short of me making an announcement that something else is going on. But, you know, I, I think that that would be a neat way to sort of keep this thing going while also not, like, totally overwhelming myself and, and running myself to the ground on this stuff. Um, which is the other side of this. Like, as much as... As much as I've tried to put on a, a happy face and, and, you know, like, be strong in the face of everything that's going on, this has been a rough couple of months for me. Um, like, when I was tapped by, by Ramapo to teach the two Love and Friendship classes, it was about the end of July. Um, I had a brief vacation with my, with my mom and with my wife and with, our, uh, with my nephew out to Washington, D.C. Like, we just drove down to Maryland and hung out saw the saw the National Zoo, saw the aquarium in Baltimore, hung out in my old alma mater's college town, Chestertown, Maryland. Like it's it was just nice and relaxing. Um, and then we came home and I got to friggin' work. And for like three weeks I was just swimming in philosophy of love and friendship material, rereading the symposium, rereading um, the Cicero's Dam Amachita, like going absolutely nose to the grindstone trying to read through those two textbooks that I've been teaching out of. Um, and honestly, like, it was, it was good. Like, it was exhausting. It was interesting. It was fascinating. Like, um, there was a lot of stuff that I hadn't read before in addition to the stuff that I had read before, and I was definitely looking at these texts from a very new perspective, as I've said multiple times during this series. You know, this is a fairly new subject to me. Like, I have read a lot of philosophers on the subject of love and friendship. Obviously, I knew the symposium pretty cold going in due to the fact that I translated it mo or translated most of it during my uh, master's at Boston College. Um, but even so, like, sort of trying to synthesize all of this, turning it into this, you know, quasi-survey class where we were going to 
kind of do the entire intro to philosophy thing while also kind of doing the, you know, survey of Western culture thing. Like, this was a lot. Um, this is almost certainly the most ambitious curriculum I've ever put together, and probably one of the most demanding as well. Like, my students are already running ragged. Um, I may have been asking a little too much of them as far as that's concerned, but it is a four-credit class. It is meant to be rigorous, um, and I, I feel at least a little bit vindicated, but I'm already thinking of edits. Like, in all likelihood, I'm probably going to be dropping that first Foucault reading in, in future versions of this class. Um, but... Hey, you'll never know, because you will just have to rely on this particular lecture series unless I decide to record another one because I've changed it that radically. Um, but suffice it to say, it was a lot of work. And a lot of work all at once, conducted very, very quickly. Um, like I am, again, speaking the, I guess, first week of October, and this is... It's been virtually eight straight weeks of nothing but reading like teaching and recording lectures. Um, for those of you who have not noticed, it's been basically four lectures a week that I've been recording every week since like the first week of September, last week of August. Um, so we're talking, you know, seven hours of recording every single week, which is rigorous at the best of times. Uh, like, that's faster than I was producing them even during the peak of COVID because I was only recording, like, four-hour and 15-minute lectures, um, which I then vetted and, like, went through a whole process with. But, you know, actual recorded material, this this has been a much more productive month or so. Um, and that's not all I've been doing either. Like, that's in addition to the classes that I've taught in person. That's in addition to recording the first hour for Video Game Academy, which is this video series that I've come up with over the past couple of months where I just play the first hour of a video game. And then I basically, like, irresponsibly judge it according to that first hour, mainly with the idea of deciding whether or not I'm going to keep playing it. Um, because my backlog at this point is enormous. I've got just hundreds of video games in my Steam and GOG accounts that I just haven't played, so it seemed like a pretty clever way of dealing with it. Um, but with all of this, I got pretty wiped out. Um, I crashed hard this past weekend, which is, according to my wife, something that happens like clockwork the first week of October anyway, so go figure. Um, suffice it to say, I am not going to keep up the schedule anymore. I have no intention to, um, and I am extremely relieved that we've kind of hit the end of my recording schedule, um, that we're, we're done with the philosophy of love and friendship as a class, as far as my internet presence is concerned. Overjoyed that the next couple of weeks I can spend my Tuesdays and Wednesdays just kind of hanging out and grading papers and relaxing instead of just trying to get out seven hours of content every single week. Um, especially because, again, the seven hours are going to you, specifically, the internet audience. Uh, my, my students don't need them nearly as much. Like, it would not have been... It would not have been totally inappropriate for me this semester to say, yeah, just get the notes from another student and not have provided these lectures. That was that was probably overambitious on my part. I, I should have given myself a little bit more time. But again, like I started this and I wanna I wanna follow through with it. I wanna see where see what else, you know, I can do for my students online. Like, again, I have a lot of respect for anyone who's followed me this far, and I've gotten a lot of positive feedback. Like, heck, my next-door neighbor apparently has started listening to my lectures, which I find weird. Like, you know, there's that whole passage in the Bible about Jesus not being recognized in his own space. And while I'm loath to commit to sort of, you know, compare myself to Jesus in this situation, I'm obviously very outclassed. Um, at the same time, I've always kind of assumed the, the logic there of, you know, nobody nobody is recognized as being intelligent or awesome or, you know, particularly valuable by the people who they grew up with, who, like, saw them running around in the backyard in their underpants. Um, and yet, apparently, they think I'm really erudite and really intelligent and, you know, have a lot of good things to say, which I find really encouraging. Like, that's awesome. Um, the more people... I can help, the more people who I can teach, the better. Um, so all of that, you know, all of that means to me that I do want to keep my internet presence going, but I'm also very protective of the time that I am devoting to it. Um, like, I 
probably am not going to keep up with the first hour videos as much as they've been really neat to do. Um, or at least as I do, it will be more sporadic than it has been up until this point. Um, I'm definitely not planning on recording any more lectures this fall. Um, so sorry, folks, if you were looking forward to, you know, Professor Kozlowski keeping up with you for the entire fall, that's probably not going to happen. Um, it's been busy, it's going to continue to be busy, and I am very aware of my mental health um, after the past year or two and the couple of breakdowns that I've had at various points. Um, like, it is, my mental health is not great on the best of days, and the whole COVID thing has been largely overwhelming. What I can say, though, is that I'm not going to be idle. Um, part of why I am not going to be engaging in a recording schedule is so I can keep up with other projects. Um, I have been working on, very, very slowly, a series on Conrad's Heart of Darkness um, as part of my Decolonizing My Bookshelf project that I undertook last year. Um, I would, in fact, like to record or to write the last couple of essays there and, and you know, actually talk about, like, the canon and exactly what its deal is and why Conrad is a part of the canon and whether or not that's really legitimate, as well as, you know, what the canon is for in the first place. Um, and then finally get around to, like, is, in fact, Conrad going to leave my bookshelf or not? Which I still, to this point, like, after a year and a half of, you know, sitting on the fence about it, have not come to a conclusion about um, I also have an essay that I'm writing for Video Game Academy that is equally ambitious. Um, after writing my Lobotomy Corporation essay at the beginning of the year, um, I did in fact play through the rest of Lobotomy Corporation, and I did in fact play through Library of Ruina this summer, and I have never had an artistic experience as profoundly like life-changing as this business of playing through these two games back-to-back, -back, like, I, I, I literally cannot emphasize enough how much my just mind is occupied with these games, like, all of the time, how much of an impact they made on me, how much, like, they just took over my, my year, um, in a sense, at least up until the end of the summer, like, those, those are incredible. Um, like, an act of true insight and love on the part of Project Moon, like, good grief, just, I'm almost disappointed that I'm not playing them in the original Korean. Like, as much as I've always said to myself that I would, like, learn Russian so I could read Dostoevsky in the original Russian, I have literally been tempted at times this, this summer to say the same thing about Project Moon's games. Like, good grief. Um... They are truly inspiring. Like, it is rare to see artistic integrity of that magnitude and that level of ambition um, in 2020 and 2021. Just good grief. Like, go play them at some point if you get the chance. Don't wait for me to write the essay. Go, go do that. Um, but yes, I do want to write that essay. It's just staggeringly ambitious because on the one hand I want to give a fairly thorough treatment of both games and you know what their themes are and what they're talking about as well as just sort of talk about exactly why I was so impressed by them so moved so affected by them um, which again is going to require some heavy-duty navel gazing on my part and the sort that is that gets into some pretty dark places like it's there's there's a lot to unpack there um, so all that to say, you know, I want to spend time working on those projects. I want to work on the novels that I have underway, which I can happily report that I have been fairly diligent about writing this, this semester. Like, I, I've reported elsewhere that, you know, I had sort of two novels that I wanted to write as a consequence of the, the pandemic, and I am well underway in both of them, although I've got like 40 pages of one and like 10 of the other. Um... So I have ho hopes of especially sort of tailoring that to Mano Remo this year and, and using the excuse of trying to get to 50,000 words to sort of motivate me. Suffice it to say, that's, that's going to happen entirely unknown to the majority of my viewers. Like, there's no way in God's green earth that I'm going to let any of you see an unfinished novel before it's in some, you know, quasi-finished state. Um, so, alas, just know that that's happening, and know that I find that really important, and that's another reason why I'm going to limit my internet presence. Um, but yeah, probably no more lectures this semester, probably a few essays here and there. Maybe I'll keep up with the first hour, maybe not. Like, I'm certainly feeling no obligation to, since there's like 
five people who have watched those videos. Besides apparently the first one. Like, apparently there's 70 people who watch me play Adom, and like seven who watch me play any of the other videos. Which, honestly, I think it did a pretty good job talking about Mist. Like, maybe the others were all garbage, but, you know. I think it's a format thing, really. Like, it, it's... A, I have sort of blended the video essay with the Let's Play, and I'm not sure it works. Like, I, I don't think that I've got, you know... I, I don't think I've got an audience for that, which may very well be the problem. Um, but anyway, if you are interested, go search the first hour. Hopefully it'll come up on YouTube. At the very least, you can find our Video Game Academy stuff. Um, VideoGameAcademy.org, I believe, is our website these days. Um, yeah, go check that stuff out. There are links to all the other projects that I'm doing. Um, I've also, as I believe I've emphasized elsewhere, I've put together a website for like all of the stuff that I've been doing. Um, Typically, I, I link to it in the comments wherever these lectures are posted, so you can find that there. Um, but if, in fact, you want to see the organized version of my madness, where I have like all of the lectures in each lecture series organized by their content, along with links to the readings, um, all that is available at Professor Kozlowski at WordPress.com. Um, so feel free to check those out. I also have links to all the other stuff that I'm doing, the stuff that's on Video Game Academy, the essays I write on my blog, like the Decolonizing Project, um, the videos I did for my church on Christian history, like, there's links to all that stuff there, and, you know, I can say that I think it's all good, but, like, obviously, some of it is better than others, and some of it is older than others. My internet presence, quiet though it may have been before the pandemics, um, has been, you know, fairly, fairly consistent since, let's say, 2012, so there's a lot of stuff on there if you want to pour through what I'm doing or what I have been doing at any given point. Um, suffice it to say, though, that nothing has gotten the traction that, that the lectures have. Like, this, again, the 13,000 or 12,000, let's not massage it any more than we have to, the 12,000 listens I've gotten is, is, like, orders of magnitude greater than the traction I've gotten on any of the other platforms. Um, which I'm, you know, kind of proud of, honestly. I'm excited that I've been able to reach people, that this has been meaningful to people. Um, even if you are just turning it on so you can fall asleep uh, to my the dulcet tones of my, you know, soothing voice, or whatever it is. Um, but the other thing I want to talk about, as far as the whole navel-gazing business is concerned, is love and friendship. Like, dang! Um... You know, for the past eight weeks, I have been neck deep in this stuff, sort of investigating this subject and, and talking about it. And, you know, as much as as much as this is just another class in some sense, it really is much more personal as I expected. Like even even in the last month of, of classes, I've noticed that my students have a connection to this material that you know I that I haven't seen from like Intro to Philosophy or even Ethics. You know, this is personal. It is, it moves them. Um, they have a vested interest in coming to conclusions about this material. And I'm almost disappointed that, like, the the answers I have to offer are the ones that Foucault talks about in his, you know, his interview here uh, in, in the Foucault Reader, the On the Genealogy of Ethics, an overview of a work in progress. He mentions that he's less interested in the answers and more interested in the questions, that he's engaged in a ge genealogy of problems. Um, and to some degree, while I am not nearly as rigorous as Foucault and not nearly as insightful as Foucault, I think I've effectively done something similar. Like, I have... I didn't go looking for answers. When my students came to me and said, Professor, you know, I want you to restore my faith in, in love in some capacity, or, you know, through this class, I hope that I understand my own relationships better. If anything, I feel like I'm guilty of just diffracting the problems they already have, changing them, adding problems they didn't know they have, you know, learning to articulate those problems in ways that they weren't originally aware. Um, and I'm not sure that I'm going to be able to offer conclusions as far as that's concerned. Like, this would be the logical lecture where Professor Kuzlowski gets on the podium and says, and here it is, folks, we've looked through the entire history of love, and now I can confidently say that it is something. But I can't. Like, I start where 
I am finishing where I started in some respect, very baffled at the sheer scope of this project that I've undertaken, and very unsure of what to advise or to offer as a potential solution. Uh, like, along the way, I've said if I found something especially meaningful, like, I explained why I thought Chesterton was so insightful about love, um, which probably came as a surprise to many of us, since Chesterton is kind of just a funny guy who is, you know, writing, you know, easy, breezy kinds of stories in Edwardian England. Like, the fact that I thought somehow he is the, the love guru, um, the greatest thinker on love in my own personal life, like, that's probably a bit shocking. Um, but I, I do in fact believe that. Like, I don't think he is the answer. I think he is answering one particular question, one particular set of problems, reframing love in a particularly uh, salient way. Uh, but that's obviously not the end of it. Like, if you ask me what is love, I am as incapable of giving you an answer now as I was back at the beginning of class. I do think there might be a little bit more to Simon May's argument about ontological groundedness, but I still don't think that he goes about that particular argument very well. Um, and I think that that's also still just a fuzzy enough term that it doesn't mean much in the grand scheme of things. Um, what I will say, though, is that I am very resistant to the idea of love as a, quote, feeling, um, even though that has very much been co-opted. Like, that is, like, the only way to look at love from the 19th century on, except for the, the sort of neo-Christians um, re-evaluating the discussion. Like, ever since probably Goethe, it seems like every philosopher who has engaged this subject has talked about it as a feeling without any idea that, that, that there was, you know, another approach to it, that love was active, um, the way that the philosophers in ancient Greece or the philosophers in the medieval period would have thought, um, which I think is a glaring oversight on their part. Like, yes, love is a feeling. Yes, love has dimensions of feeling, but I suspect the feelings are the symptoms of love and not the actual love itself. Um, it sort of just stands to reason that our culture cannot distinguish the symptoms from the cause. Um, plenty, of, plenty of evidence of that out there. Uh, what I also find striking is, you know, in our contemporary discussion of love, we tend to, you know, again, sort of emphasize it as a feeling as passive, but also sort of emphasize our powerlessness in the situation. Like, even in as far as the identity conversation that Foucault and Werner were undertaking the last lecture, there's a lot to be said about how our culture tends to think that we are, you know, the victims of love instead of the actual perpetrators of it. That, you know, even, especially in respect to what we're talking about today with the technologies of the self, you know, Foucault is very aware of the fact that the Greeks and the Christians both perceive themselves as responsible for their feelings. Um, that the Greeks had started with the, the little notebook things where they're, they're recording their, their thoughts and their, their ideas throughout the day, you know, repeating their, their witticisms and their insights uh, for presumably posterity or just so they could read it over again later. Um, and in doing so, had sort of appreciated an aesthetic value to their life, this kind of living the beautiful life as much as they were living the good life, which is something that the Romantics would definitely appreciate as well. Like, it's hard not to see Werther as, you know, tragically beautiful, um, and for many of the Romantics following Goethe to admire the tragic beauty of their own lives in a weirdly masturbatory way. Looking at you, Byron, looking at you. Although, honestly, that's probably not fair. Byron is... Byron is sneaky about his his insights and his attitudes. I suspect that he he was a little bit more deliberate than a victim of his romances. Um, but again, the romantics do sort of fall into that, and we following them do the same. Um, and I'm kind of struck by this whole perspective. Like, I'm, I'm really keen to talk about this st stuff with my class as much as it is going to be like two months from now. Um, talking about how the aesthetic life is lived, how we view our own aesthetic lives. But then, of course, we've got the Christians and they're them trying to sort of keep an eye on their desires and recognizing that, like, you know, desires for things could come from God or they could come from Satan. We had to, like, guard ourselves carefully to make sure that Satan isn't poisoning our minds. Like, there's, there's a really interesting and, and rich tradition there, but 
if anything, it just drives home, again, how responsible they were um, for their own lives. Like, even as they are sort of just keeping a checklist of how they are being affected, how love is, is making them think, at the same time, they're very much on guard against it. Both the Stoics and the Christians, both of these sort of austerity philosophies towards love, are very much emphasizing our responsibility in this case, which is something that I think is really important, something that I connect to. Um, and that's not to say that we all have to be Stoics. No, what I'm saying is we all have to be conscious. We all have to be deliberate. And we can't, you know, as Sartre would tell us, we can't pretend like we are just the victims of love, like we have no, no activity, no agency in love. Um, I suspect that if there is one giant fault of contemporary perspectives on love, that's what it is. Like, if there is one problem, um, that's the one that I want to address. Uh, I want us to be agents in love. I want us to take responsibility for our love, whether it's from the existentialist's perspective or the Stoic's perspective or whoever's, um, whether it's from, you know, Chesterton emphasizing that, like, one has to repeatedly fall in love with the person who we people we care about, or if it's, you know, like Dante devoting himself 100% to his beloved and, and seeing her as sort of the highest accomplishment that he can aspire to, you know, in either case, what we're saying here is take love seriously, you know, be responsible for it. Like, I don't think I've ever had as much of a sour reaction to a book as I did to Milan Kundera's um, The Unbearable Lightness of Being, largely because he's emphasizing, you know, we are powerless in love and you know, we are repeatedly doomed to, you know, cause pain to others, and we're, we're just, we are who we are, and there's nothing that we can do about it, so we just go on loving, and we go on hurting, and, and I was like, good grief, that's grim, and no, that's not what Nietzsche is saying, and, ugh, the whole thing was so disgusting and frustrating to me, like, I still, I, I'm still not over it. It happened like 15 years ago that I read that book and was disgusted by it, and I, I am still not over it. Um, but that kind of philosophy just irks me. Like, no, you do have agency. You may not be able to control how you feel about it. Like, maybe the jury is still out on that one. But you can control what you do with that information. Um, like, yes, we should not be judging one another uh, for their, their sexual actions. But we should not, you know, weep bitter tears over our own fatalism. We should not, you know, sit there thinking to ourselves that there's literally nothing we can do about our own feelings, literally nothing we can do about our own actions, just sort of sit in our own filth and let these cycles play out over and over and over again. Um, no, I, I firmly believe that we can take some agency, we can make some changes in our lives. We're not all doomed. Um, yes, there are addictions and there are behaviors that become habitual, that become very sort of rooted, sort of grounded in our own lives, it just means that it takes that much work, that much more work to change them. Um, and that's not just my Christianity speaking. Like, there's a lot there. Again, as Foucault is emphasizing here, the austerity measures sort of against sexuality in ancient cultures were there long before Christianity showed up to sort of uh, integrate them into their philosophy. And if anything, Christianity is integrating them artificially. Like, you'll notice what Foucault is essentially arguing here is that Stoicism was basically added on to Christianity by Christians. Probably Tertullian. That guy. Um, God bless him. I love Tertullian. Um, but, you know, the Stoic attitude was probably foreign to the way that at least the non-sort of Hellenified Jews would have understood this. Like, that might be an import of Paul, or it might be a post-Paul import, or, you know, it might be a sort of especially Greek interpretation of Paul. Like, it's tricksy, but at the very least, you know, looking, looking as I have through these texts for the umpteenth time, you know, having studied the, the uh, Church Fathers, having studied the Bible extensively, having studied you know, like, different takes on, on how Paul influenced the, the Christian canon and how Christianity has matured and changed over the thousands of years that we've talked about during this class, I tend to think that the Stoic attitude is something of a perversion of Christianity. Not necessarily bad, not necessarily a, a 
totally negative distortion, but as Foucault has emphasized, you know, every change brings on new problems. Um, there are new dangers with literally every ideology you can adopt. Um, that's the way that he phrases it, and I find that striking, like, new dangers with every ideology. Not saying that it's good, not saying that it's bad, but that it has certain benefits and certain risks. Um, by equipping this ideology, you get plus two to accuracy and minus three to, you know, integrity. Like, this is essentially what we're talking about here. There are risks and rewards to any one of the philosophies that you could possibly adopt here. Um, and that's the key. Like, there's no silver bullet solution here. Adopt one of these philosophies and you will accept the risks as well as the rewards. Um, you're never going to solve the enigma of love, as one of our philosophers have put it. Um, you're just going to end up asking more questions, dealing with more problems. So, on the one hand, I want to stress, like, there isn't going to be an answer here. I don't have an answer. Like, I've been poring over this stuff for the last two months, and it's not been nearly enough for me to come to any conclusion, perhaps because the material is just so, so dense, so opaque. Um, but also, I don't anticipate coming to one. Like, I don't expect that after teaching this class for four years, I'm finally going to be able to, like, sit back in my den chair and say, well, nope, I've got it all figured out now. Like, thousands of years we've been poring over this stuff um, and come to no conclusion. The one thing that I definitely wanted to get across in this class is that we don't have the answer, and our perspective isn't necessarily even the best one. Um, it's all that much more important to me to communicate to my students and to you um, that our attitude on love, the the you know obsessions and um, the preoccupations of the 21st century are not definitive. Um, you do not need to adopt that paradigm. You can love differently um, in some sense. How exactly, though, you're going to have to figure out for yourself. There's not going to be some kind of answer coming from me. Um, so all that to say, like, I have really enjoyed teaching this class. I have really enjoyed taking a stab at this class. I am very exhausted by the whole process both mentally and physically and spiritually. Like, this is, this has been more open, I think, than any of the other classes have forced me to be. Um, this has forced me to reckon with myself more than any of my classes, again, including ethics, have forced me to be. And I'm not entirely sure if it was even healthy. Like, my wife and I have you know, talked frequently about the various perspectives that I've run into here, largely just because I was thinking about them, dwelling on them. And it influenced me. Like, it, it, it affected me, forced me to sort of rethink the way that I was behaving, the way that I wanted things, the way that I was, you know, engaging in my own sex life in some sense. Like, why was I doing these things? And is Freud right? And I'm literally just pining after my own mother? Like... It's tricky, and it's not for the faint of heart. Like, you know, philosophy is is never a discipline for the faint of heart in some ways. But, you know, this was this was territory where I didn't have terrible confidence in coming to a solution. Um, like from the beginning of this process on, I I knew that this was going to be over my head in some sense, and to some degree, I'm not entirely sure. And this is really going to seem weird coming from me. I'm not really sure that dwelling on this is necessarily the best idea. Um, like, in general, I tend to be of the opinion that you, you know, search for truth hard enough and you will find it. Like, if you pursue philosophy, if you pursue wisdom, if you read everything that you can get your hands on, if, if you look at it with a very open mind, with a, a sort of uncritical eye, but also a very careful sort of approach, um, that you will, you know, educate yourself out of your problems. You will, in fact, come to wisdom one way or the other. What I want to stress in the subject of love and friendship is that as much as this is to some degree true, and I do feel enriched by sort of looking through all of these thinkers, looking at all of their perspectives, and trying to understand what's going on here, 
Um, on the one hand, this is woefully in inadequate. Like, this is not nearly enough for me to claim expertise by any extent of the imagination. I was, again, as I've expressed, very frustrated with many of our excerpts. And, you know, if I'm going to teach this class in the future, you better believe I'm going to be reading the Ring Neck of, or, or the Neck Ring of the Dove, the Rousseau's Emile Kierkegaard's work of, Works of Love. Like, I'm going deeper. Um, but at the same time, for the layperson, I can't say I recommend studying this wholeheartedly. Like, if in fact you are going, are concerned about the way that you are loving, I'm not entirely sure that philosophy is the discipline that's going to answer all of your questions. Um, it might, if you devote a lot of time and a lot of energy to it. Um, but if anything, I find myself kind of led to think that by you know, engaging in a lot of this sort of, you know, self-analysis and reading a lot of these philosophers, and especially the likes of Schopenhauer and Freud, who encourage you to sort of engage with yourself and, and are kind of questioning the basic assumptions about our humanity that I kind of take for granted, I am really not sure how profitable they are for reading and self-analysis. Freud especially. Like, Freud will make you go to some dark places and make you challenge yourselves, yourself in ways that aren't necessarily profitable or helpful, and he does so with a sort of authority that very much makes you shrink down to the size of an ant under a magnifying glass, you know, ready to be burned at, the, at, the, at any given moment. That's not great. Especially for anyone who has, you know, experienced serious anxiety or depression or, you know, people who are vulnerable in that way. Um, I wouldn't recommend that they solve their problems by sheer force of will in this sense. Like, I wouldn't have a problem saying, yes, by all means, read some of the intro to philosophy stuff or read some of the ethics stuff. But, you know... Freud and Sartre, Schopenhauer, and Nietzsche are all just standing there calling you out, saying, you know, you are not who you think you are. You are not, you know, some rational being. You are not dignified. And that I just can't condone. Um, like, enough people are already sort of trapped in their love relationships in the 21st century. Not necessarily trapped in the sense of, like, being stuck in a place they don't want to be, but stop thinking about it. Like, the problem for many of these people is not, I have not thought about my love relationship enough, but I am thinking about it so obsessively that I am now paralyzed by my own thought process. You know, the people who are spiraling about their love relationships. Like, that's such a common phenomenon in our culture that I can't imagine that philosophy is going to be the most direct way out of that. Um, on some level, we have to do what Bayer is talking about. Just throw caution to the winds and love. Um, just accept our role in these relationships. Not expect perfection from anybody around us. Not look to love as our, sal our salvation or our you know, saving grace, as the solution to our problems. We need to have, as Bayer points out, that more modified, that more moderated view of love. Um, and while, again, you may question, well, how do you square that with Christianity? Well, fairly simply, we are sinners. We will fail. Um, love isn't transcendent in the sense that it makes us godlike. Love is transcendent because it is itself godlike. Um, because it is an opportunity to, you know, let being less actually be more. Um, loving in humility, loving the way that Byer is talking about it there, you know, I think that, that there's nothing incompatible with Christianity as far as that's concerned. And in fact, you know, it is folks like Chesterton, folks like Lewis, who are loving in humility, in a recognition that this is not the, the end-all and be-all. Um, much as Byer herself is saying, you know, it's the theological view of love that is, you know, responsible for so many of our neuroses and so many of our inflated perspectives, and these theological dimensions definitely spring from Christianity, I take that to be a misreading of Christianity to some degree. Like, yes, we are supposed to love God and be loved by God, absolutely, and we are supposed to raise our relationships up to that divine level, but this also recognizes, you know, Good Christianity also recognizes that we're not going to do it. Like, 
it's holy, it is sanctified, sure, but we are sinners and that is not divorceable from our love relationships. Good Christians recognize that they're not going to love perfectly. Um, as much as Christianity is responsible for a lot of those expectations on love that don't belong there. Um, so it's tricky. It's complicated. Um, but if, in fact, I were to recommend any course of action to you, it is just love. Don't overthink it. Um, don't try and, you know, whittle around your, your thoughts to, to figure out exactly what's going on. You, you d won't necessarily do that. You won't necessarily be successful. Um, when you reevaluate, when you reevaluate your motives, when you worry about your behavior, that won't actually help you solve anything. Um, like, yes, we should be self-conscious. Yes, we should be self-analytical. Um, yes, you don't want to become a tyrant in love in the same way that you don't want to become a tyrant in any other way. Um, but I tend to think that most of the people listening to my lectures who are sort of taking this seriously, that's not their problem. Their problem is doubt, self-doubt specifically. Um, and no amount of philosophy is going to help you conquer self-doubt. Like, philosophy is systematic doubt. That's what it does. Um, so if you have a problem and your problem is doubt, then the correct solution is confidence. Like, the correct solution is stop doubting. Um, just take a plunge, do what Kierkegaard is saying, make a leap of faith, like, just go do the thing. Um, chances are everybody will be better that way. And if you're honest about it with your partners, especially, you know, that that's such an important key thing. Like, again, my wife so frequently is consoling or counseling her friends, like, you know, just talk to your husband, talk to your boyfriend, talk to your lover. Um, that's so huge and so simple and so straightforward and surprisingly so difficult. Um, and I think that on the one hand there is sort of like a, an idealized version of this that, that sort of glosses over the actual difficulty that, that is involved in being honest with another person. Um, at the same time I recognize that for so many people it's just difficult. It just is. Like be honest about your doubts with other people. Be honest about your expectations with other people. Be honest about your, your you know, likes and dislikes with other people. Don't get into a relationship that stymies you. Um, like, as, as much as we sort of make make fun of the, the kind of open and honest relationships that has, you know, husbands and wives being, like, very, very sympathetic and understanding and, and sort of almost to the point of, of parody... That works a lot better than the opposite. Um, like, I, I remember reading a, a, a book by a, a trans person called Docile, which was, you know, this account of, it was science fiction about, like, you know, a, a, a dystopian future where, you know, sexuality really is commodified and people are, like, drugged into being pliant uh, servants sexually for rich people. Um, and while I didn't really connect to the book all that well, I thought the characters were a bit flat. Um, I thought the concept was interesting, and as much, it challenged the living shit out of me as far as my sexuality was concerned, just because it was very obviously not written for me. Um, like, straight white dudes were not invited to that particular party. Like, it, it was very much an account of, of homosexual eroticism in a sort of broken state, but also with a sort of idealized solution to that, um, in which, you know, there, there was an example of a, of a positive relationship where they were extremely open and frank about their sexuality, and I was like, I have never seen anything remotely like this before. And I literally couldn't sit there and say to myself, you know, is this actually rooted in reality, or is this, you know, just some sort of fantastic ideal that the, the writer was aspiring to? Um, if it is a fantastic ideal, it's a pretty hard one to argue against, I think, where open honesty and, and consent is all, but um, at the same time, it doesn't seem realistic to my experience of sexuality. Like, sex is messy. Sex is rough. Like, not necessarily in the sense of violent, but in the sense that, like, power is 
If, in fact, you have a 100% total understanding of the power relationships involved in a sexual relationship, that kind of takes, as you know, Adorno put it in Warner's essay, the spiciness out of it. Um, it's not that simple, I suspect. Um, but again, if it's working for, him, for the writer of that book, then, hey, who am I to criticize? Um, suffice it to say that it's a better ideal than, again, the sort of, like, just very closed, very, you know, non-communicative, idealized romance that, you know, many people in America today seem to be involved in, where no communication is happening. Um, like, whether or not you think commitment is good or bad for love and sexuality, like, you have to say that communication is good. Like, I don't think there's any other way around it. Um, suffice it to say, there's my navel-gazing for today. I, I don't think I have too terribly much to add. Uh, and I wanted this to be a shorter lecture. Like, come on. Um, you've made it through, what, like 40, 50 hours of Love and Friendship lectures to get to this point? Or you're just listening to this one and, you know, it intrigued you for whatever reason. I don't know. I don't know what you're doing out there, listeners. My my information is, is very limited about your behavior and activities. Um, suffice it to say, going forward... Probably not too many lectures, probably going to work on some other projects. I am hoping to do a Brothers Karamazov series in the spring. I will report more on that on my website if, in fact, that's going to go ahead or if, in fact, I've got to change it up because of something else that's going on. Um, so keep an eye on that. Professor Gislowski at WordPress.com. Again, there should be a link in, in the description to this, this lecture. Um, I do hope to talk soon again, like in the future, either maybe not this fall, but, but later to come. Um, and if you are interested in, you know, me keeping this up, let me know. Like, seriously. If you were sitting there asking yourself, like, you know, oh, I don't want to inconvenience him, or I don't want to, you know, actually send an email, please do. Um, I have very little expectation for what this whole lecture series is going to accomplish, what, what it's out to do. Um, and, you know, we really are at a kind of crossroads here. Like, I am literally trying to figure out what to do with my life going forward. I suspect we all are, honestly, after all this COVID nonsense. Um, like, as much as we have not yet gotten over it, um, for those of us who are vaccinated and who are sort of safe practicing, wearing masks, social distancing, all of that, you know... we. <laughs> The fact of the matter is, we're not going to get everybody to vaccinate. Like, I want to, I want to say, yes, the, the day is coming, hooray for legislation. But the fact of the matter is, like, the conservative elements of our society who are very determinedly against vaccination for some mad reason, like, why is this political? Ugh, um, they're not going to be convinced. And no matter what like legislation gets laid down by our lawmakers, it's not going to change that. Um, we need to not use that as an excuse to not prepare ourselves, not protect ourselves. Like, if you were listening to this and you were an anti-vaxxer, please, please rethink your philosophy. Hell, email me about that, and we, and we can talk about that for a while. Um, but seriously, like, we need, to, we need to move forward. We need to start planning again. We need to start thinking about the future. Like, for the last two years, we've sort of just put everything on hold while this chaos plays out. Um, or at least for many of us, that's been the case. I personally need to start thinking about what the post-COVID world is going to look like in my life. Like, I'm hoping not to record too many more lectures going forward, as weird as that sounds. I, I want that to be recreational and not you know, an obligation that I am responsible to do for all of my classes. Um, but at the same time, I can no longer expect or rely upon the traffic that my classes were offering. Like, I need to plan in that direction. Um, and I don't know where I'm going. Um, I'd like to, you know, next year at least, since probably it's too late to, to start the process this year, um, to start making some PhD applications and actually, like, getting into a program somewhere. Um, I would like to get published in a reputable form in some way, like either get some of my short stories published or, you know, get one of my novels out there. Um, and I don't want to self-publish. Like, I would, 
I am already so terrible at marketing. Like, if if it isn't obvious, this is not my game. Um, like, I, I, I am way more interested in producing meaningful shit than I am in making sure that, like, that shit gets recognized. Like, I am... In the deepest recesses of my soul, I have a certain aversion to the business of marketing altogether. Like, I would hope that this would spread by word of mouth. Um, and I think it has, to some degree, but it's not going to be any... Like, the speed at which it is spreading it does not bode well for me being able to turn this into anything profitable or marketable. Um, I've kicked around the idea of starting a Patreon several times, and ultimately just not because I don't want to solicit my listeners for, for money at this stage. Like, I've kind of been on, on, under the impression that as soon as I hit, like, maybe 100 consistent listeners or, like, maybe 100,000 plays across my, my lecture series that maybe I would I would look into that. Um, but the, the rule of thumb on the Internet is that if, you know, if you don't have a solid audience behind you already, um, starting to meticulously advertise yourself is posturing at best and uh, sort of actually driving people away at worst. Um, I'd like this to be popular on its own steam before I start trying to, you know, like use the, the tools at my disposal to make this something that I do more often. And the fact of the matter is I'm never going to be good at marketing. I, I don't want to be good at marketing. I don't, I don't want that to be a part of my process. Um, like, yes, I want to sort of keep up with the various platforms I've already established, but I do not want to, you know, pay some person to improve my Google search stats or to manipulate the, the listeners or like, God forbid, actually run commercials. Ugh. Um, like, you know, Anchor, for example, the platform where I upload all of my lectures, they, they are constantly telling me, what about monetization? What about monetization? You could just plug something and then it would be fine and you'd make some money off of it. And I just don't want to do that. Like, I don't know what they'd make me sell, and I probably would have enough dis, uh, sort of um, discretion to decide what it is. But, you know, then we get into a lot of legal territory, and, you know, I definitely don't want to be sort of making money off of the lectures that I am obligated to post for, for my schools. Like, that's that sounds like a lot of potential trouble waiting to happen. So, at this point, this is working sort of... Um, but at the same time, I recognize that there's no future in it as it stands. Um, so if you think that there's more that you want out of this, if you really are ride or die for Professor Kozlowski's lectures, you got to let me know. Like, and you've got to let other people know. Um, like this, I can't make this go viral. It, it's it's just not that kind of show. Um, you know, memes that go viral go viral because they're they're easily digestible because you can pick them up and put them down in seconds or minutes. Um, I'm recording a podcast of a lecture that is like an hour and 40 minutes at, at, at length. Um, you know, nobody's going to sit for that. No, no, my audience is out there, um, but it is small. It is the minority. Um, so I have no expectations of being able to reach everyone quickly. Um, if you in fact do like this stuff, you gotta share it. You gotta you gotta let me know. You gotta sort of direct me. What do you like about it? Hell, send me a critical emails. Tell me what you don't like. Um, tell me what I can do to improve things, especially if you have experience in podcasting, because I clearly don't. Like two years, I've been doing this shit, and it is very obviously just off the cuff. Um, as much as you know, my friends and I have tried to put together our video game academy stuff. It just does not take off the ground because we are all bad at it. Um, so if you can help, by all means, you know, drop me a line. Give me some suggestions, some pointers. Um, I am extremely distrustful of the people who are starting to appear in my uh, my inbox saying, you know, I am a professional so-and-so and I can help you raise your stats. And it's like... No, you obviously are working from a free Gmail account and your email address is your name. Like, this is a scam or something comparable to a scam. Um, please leave me alone. Um, but yeah, the vultures are circling, which means that I'm doing something right and I'm not doing enough right. So, you know, give, by all means, write in. Tell me how I'm doing. Um, and in the meantime, I hope that it 
proves to be a good year for the rest of us. I hope that we do not have any more gigantic catastrophes. Um, I hope we do not suffer any more new global pandemics or horrific variants of the disease that we've already got. Um, I hope that there are lots of good movies out this month. I, for one, am looking forward a lot to Denis Villeneuve's Dune and Edgar Wright's Last Night in Soho. Like, it's a good time to be a movie fan, everyone. It, after, you know, a year and a half of everything being stalled out in production, it's like October is the month that all the good movies are suddenly coming out, or at least all the movies that I hope will be good. Um, but yeah, it's an exciting time. Lots of changes, lots of new stuff to think about. Um, so, yeah, I don't know what the future exactly holds for us. Um, again, I'll keep everyone posted on my website. Again, I hope Brothers Karamazov in the spring and with maybe more books to follow as time goes on. Um, I could totally see that being the form that this podcast takes, especially if there's a lot of, a lot of call for it. Um, but if you want something else, if you'd like the survey form, let me know. If you like, you know, the philosophy texts that we've discussed or those sort of bonus lectures where I've talked about the philosophy of, Mer of America or something, let me know. Um, I don't know what is resonating, and while I don't want to turn into basically like a popularity contest where I'm just doing what everybody likes, at the same time, you know, I'm, I want to follow up with the people who have been following up with me, who find this stuff interesting. Um, I would love to expand on some of the ideas, on some of the concepts, on some of the writers, on some of the readings that we've had over the last few years. Um, so just let me know. Email me. Professor, or what is it, Prof B. Kozlowski at uh, gmail.com, I believe is the email address that we were using primarily. Um, like, by all means, let me know. Um, and in the meantime, I will be offline for a while, but I'll talk to you when that time ends.